0: CEO, founder, chief cook and bottle washer at Turbine dot T e r b i n e. David, how you doing? Great. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Um. So absolutely. I've always found it is better to let the person that runs the company describe it rather than me, you know, bumbling it. So go ahead, tell people what uh, Turbine does, please. Sure. So Turbine
1: is a relatively young company, uh, founded. To create the first global marketplace for the data from the Internet of Things, uh, so not a modest uh, charter, and we've uh, been we've been going for about two years now in relative stealth mode, and we're very very close to actually going into a
0: very public beta of the product, and so uh, here we are. All right. So what what kind of data do you harness, and what what kind of Internet of Things devices are you looking at first, and what are you going to do with the data?
1: Sure. So uh, the idea of a marketplace is that we're not a broker, we're not an analytics firm, we're not an IoT platform. Instead, we're sort of at the top center of all those things. And uh, that means that we don't talk to devices. We are actually fairly agnostic about what the sensor data is. And our current focus is to work with uh, large organizations. They tend to be government agencies, uh, not just in the US, but all over the world lots of large companies. It's sort of a who's who of names. And we're starting out with a uh, an individual sector. And the reason is we're a, a new company. And a venture capital friend uh, said to me, um, well, we want to hear that you have the ambition to boil the oceans, but you need to start by boiling a teapot. I said, well, there you go. And we're uh, it's a, the, the teapot you pick first is very important to whether or not you can become successful. So after a lot of decision-making, we decided to focus on the broad transportation industry. And it kind of pulls in behind it lots of other things like energy and smart cities and eventually consumer things. So what that means is we're talking with, uh, obviously, car companies, um, which uniquely in their parlance, they call themselves OEMs. Those of you who are familiar with the electronics industry know that OEM is usually the term applied to somebody that would make, say, the the GPS chip or the microphone in your f- cell phone. But in the car industry alone, they call the car companies the OEMs, and everybody who makes the components are called tier one or tier two or tier three suppliers. So we're talking to all those guys uh, all over the world. We're talking to people that are in the broader Transportation ecosystems. This includes people that make, you know, that have container ships and railroads and airplanes and um, even traffic light management, a lot of really interesting stuff. And they're all starting to throw off staggering amounts of sensor data. It's, uh, you know, we're into petabytes of data that's out there. And nobody's stepped up to curating it and kind of indexing the whole thing and making it, uh, you know, searchable, not just by humans, but most importantly by machines, like an analytics platform that need to rapidly find something and pull it
0: in. So you want to be the, um, I don't you know, I guess maybe the plumbing, you know, hooking up to the sources of data and then getting it to the analytics engines and then eventually to the customers so they can, you show them, Hey, we've analyzed all the data coming from your traffic lights or container ships or whatever it may be. And here's some important stuff it reveals.
1: You know, we've thought a lot about that. Does it become plumbing someday? Uh, I suppose that would be way down the road, a hallmark of success that it just becomes fabric or plumbing right now. It's uh, there's so much that you have to do from a computing and a business standpoint to make all this happen that uh, it's probably pretty far above the plumbing layer right now. We're um, we're really building a whole new layer on the allotted stack and a gentleman who's uh, on our advisory board, a uh, really cool guy named John Rossman, he's uh, the guy who wrote a popular e-commerce book called The Amazon Way. He's talked a lot about you know, somebody's going to be the Amazon of the Internet of Things, maybe it's Turbine, and what he means by that, and he helped create the actual Amazon Marketplace Partners program when he was with, doing work with them. And the idea there was uh, Amazon's building all this infrastructure to kind of curate sales of items. Why not offer that to other merchants? And pretty quickly, we went from a world where every little merchant and every big merchant felt they had to have their own e-commerce solution. And eventually, Amazon subsumed a huge amount of that and said, you know, we're going to do all this anyway. You may as well jump on our wagon. Now, over a long period of time... Amazon, uh, kind of went back to a lot of them and said, you know, you don't really need your own front end for all this. Amazon will just be the front end and you'll just right. feed, feed stuff into the pipeline. And at that point, if you want to be really abstracted about it, you can almost call Amazon the plumbing for e-commerce, which I don't know how often that's said there. Yeah. So, um, We have some really smart people around us who are helping to shepherd us in that direction. And right now, it's a very, uh, you know, we're going up a 500 foot cliff with, uh, you know, climbing harnesses, which is how do you get big companies who have never shared this data before in any way to let that data out? And it's a very daunting set of challenges that we stepped up to. And that includes management of um, ownership rights chains of provenance for the data, uh, qualifying the data in terms of its uh, context and known quality, a whole bunch of issues like that, uh, rights management, um, regulatory issues, such as can you move that data from the European Union to Asia, Um, Hmm. all of those things that are all uh, kind of the down and dirty issues you have to deal with if you want to do this in any kind of scale. And Really, what we attempt to take off the table for a lot of big companies is exactly what Amazon did in the, you know, the goods world, which was, you know, hey, this is a lot of work. Um, instead of you having to set up all these regulatory and management issues and all these trading relationships, you'll go through us. We take a piece of the action, and but you don't have to deal with any of it. And hopefully, the opportunity costs associated with that is a better transactive deal than doing it on their own. And then on the other side of the equation, which is really vital when we're talking about this transportation area, um, is we've talked to quite a lot of city managers, big cities, small cities, and they all have about the same complaint in this last year since we've been talking to them, which is, Cheapers, for the first time, I've got you know all the car companies and people that make street lighting and trucks and you know whatever coming to me, the city manager, and saying, hey, we should have a data sharing relationship saying, well, we don't know how to do that. We don't have a staff to do that. We don't have the IT infrastructure to do that. And one of them said fairly glibly, every company that that goes and talks to them, and this is for a big city, thinks they're the center of the universe and the most important people in the world.
0: <laughs> right, and right. Um,
1: so they all expect their full attention. And they said, you know, get in line. There's 50 companies behind you that are all the most important company in the world. And um, you know, corporate ego actually is something you have to worry about in this kind of a context. So we we try very hard to deal with that in, in a positive way and let the companies own their things, control how it gets routed, if you will. Um, in fact, in some cases, they can keep all their data on their site and it only gets pulled out in sl- slivers when we have somebody who needs it. And all that alone is a big
0: IT challenge. Interesting. It's hmm. I mean, it sounds like you have a lot of different kinds of customers as soon as you're ready. You know, there's analytics companies that would love to, you know, partner with you because they've got uh, the the platform to analyze the data. And then all the companies that have these IoT-enabled devices that are generating the data, they need you. You know, and uh, yeah, it makes sense, the the waters you're helping them try to navigate.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you a couple things. So there are... A lot of companies um, saying they're making IoT platforms. Uh, I'd say some healthy percentage of them were doing something else, and then they've kind of relabeled their platforms as IoT very opportunistically, but make success. Um, and then you've got things that are enormous, purpose-built IoT platforms. Probably the top list would be, for example, uh, GE uh, Predix, P-R-E-D-I-X. That's their IoT platform. You've got Tom Siebel's Newer company, C3IoT, uh, doing very well. Uh, you've got Jasper, which you know was acquired by Cisco, and there's a bunch of others. And the uh, idea with them, since we're the uh, new company, is we write interface modules to them, both coming and going. So if they have a customer, say, using a Predix engine data from that engine can be fed into Turbine. It will create metadata and indexes around it so that it can be searched for and curated. And then uh, third parties whom their, their customers want to trade with will now have access in a very you know clean way. On the other side, there might be data that's in Turbine that their predicts customers need, and it provides a really straightforward API-based way to get at it. And then you've got analytics firms. So they're not offering a a management platform for the data, they're doing some end analytics. Now, when we started our company, um, we decided we didn't want to do the end analytics. We do plenty of analytics to curate the data and assess its quality and so on, but we needed to be able to speak to people doing analytics. So that's why we early on developed an API suite so they could just connect. Now, the interesting thing is... um, the whole core to everything we're doing is a very rich metadata specification. And it's uh, we're being told by quite a lot of people that it's the first sort of uh, real specification for data in the IoT in the sense that it takes uh, – I'm not saying there aren't others that are great. But this one takes into account things like regulatory, business, and financial matters. And if you look at the metadata spec, for example, it's governing this very uh, phone call we're on. Um, mm. There's a spec that all the phone companies in the world use that was developed an amazingly long time ago as phone networks went from analog to digital called Signaling System 7. And those familiar with telecommunications will smile and say, oh, yeah, that thing. Well, Signaling System 7 has governed many trillions of phone calls. It almost never fails. It's only failed when there's some software upgrade that somebody you know, did to a, a router or something. It's never the, the spec that fails. and we actually took a lot of ideas from that and uh, some other things, like how uh, metadata works in streaming media, for example, and kind of amalgamated those ideas into our metadata spec. But we're not here to make money off of spec, so uh, we've been encouraged to just open source it, which we're we're going to do this summer, and that'll allow anybody to kind of add their own value and use it. Our money is made by the implementation of the spec that eventually leads to monetization of the data. And for example, uh, we take into account pretty exotic concept that once everybody hears it, they almost always say, oh, we do need that, which is grading the data. So the problem with the data from the internet of things, so this is one way or another machine generated, not human generated sensor data. Problem with the sensor data is after we talked to a lot of people and realized we can't attempt to normalize it mathematically sort of the easy out on all this would be, well, we'll just normalize it and combine it into a, a, a finite number of formats. That's what happens in financial world. That's what happens in media world. You know, we're down to where you only have to deal with a handful of file formats, you know, like MPEG and, you know, and that sort of thing, right? So we realized that if you normalize sensor data, it's, it's lossy mathematically, which means that eventually something that you normalize out, could be the thing that some user needs to make a life or death decision. And this is why the Internet of Things data is really different to, say, you know, Google or Facebook data. Internet of Things data could be used even in real time to make a life or death decision. It could even be a life or death decision that affects a lot of people. So um, here's a fun one: uh, Should we open the floodgates of the dam, possibly killing everybody in the village below? It's <laughs> like a movie scenario, but it's a real thing. Uh, do we stop the container ship? Do we turn all the lights in this neighborhood red? You know, and that sort of thing. So these are so uh, these are high value decisions, and uh, or it could even be something as simple as stopping an assembly line, but that also has consequences. So because of that, and the import of the data, if you will we realized we cannot normalize actual data. We would instead go to the next level and normalize how you describe and index the data. And that's that really is the, the, the genus of the whole metadata concept. And then we decided, well, if you're not normalizing the data, you still have to tell the ultimate user of that data, which is probably a machine, what they've got to work with. And so that led to this idea of grading the data. It's, again, a, a pretty new concept. So Grading data means we take into account a fairly wide variety of factors about context, known provenance, and other factors, and then we develop a grade. And we're going out there initially with a grading system that has a thousand to one difference between the lowest grade and the highest grade. So for example, uh, a home watching machine might have sensors in it and even Wi-Fi now but, you know, I could take my washing machine, fill it with vodka and fruit and make some cool beverages for a party if I wanted to. <laughs> yeah, Not probably a good use of my washer or if I had a fitness tracker, I could put it on a dog to see how many steps it takes in a day. <laughs> so it's not necessarily right. a an accurate proxy of anything, no matter how good the device is, it has to do with its context. So now you go to the highest level, say a jet engine, there's only a few people that make these for big planes. There's multiple sensors, each with processors that all have to agree. And and, uh, if they're not agreeing, creating anomalous readings, those are beamed ahead of the plane to a center that decides, you know what, I need to have some guys with these parts at the next airport this plane gets to and fix that. So not what you have with your home washing machine. So the grading range is huge. And so it kind of roughly fits into these categories for human understanding, which are bronze, silver, gold, platinum. And platinum right. is a rare thing. Platinum means really, mm-hmm. really good. And that means humans and/or processes are actually worried about those sensors, meaning literally just the sensors, like on a jet engine. So all of this uh, creates the environment where you kind of call it caveat emptor. Um, whoever's using that data analytics or a machine would know. Well, I have five ways to get the data on this one subject matter. Um, what I'm doing is critical, so I'm going to go for platinum if it's there. If it's not there, I factor in the you know variableness of that data, knowing that it may not be perfect. So this is, an again, it's in the metadata spec that we're going to out, uh, open source.
0: So what do you think? Look, I'm going to ask you two things. What is probably the most important factor about what you need to do with the data that um, other companies and vendors are just not going to be able to do? You know, what, what's the greatest value you bring? You think out of everything you're going to do? And what do you think you know, will be the biggest stumbling block to you getting this data and then getting it in the hands of the right people? For analysis, sure. For everything. Quite a lot of the uh, call it the secret sauce is
1: how you figure out what I just described in terms of how do you contextualize the data so that a third party can make good use of it. It's a very daunting challenge, actually. Um, I'm sure anybody who's familiar with data science just heard what I said about that and said, "Wow, that is a lot of work." Yes, uh, it's so much work that we realize that we have to use very state of the art tools and in artificial intelligence pull it off. So right now, in the testing phase, we've been doing it manually. Um, if you know this data analytics company called Palantir, uh, which started with money from the CIA, they did exactly that. They had this rooms full of people doing it manually and eventually figured out what could you do algorithmically and eventually with AI. We're doing that at pretty high speed now. Um, we're standing on the shoulders of other people who have done this sort of thing. And um, in this context... Uh, pretty quickly, we're going to be able to do it with AI. That's that's definitely going to be uh, part of our proprietary advantage. On the other side of it, which which answers your other question, part of the question is uh, how do you get these big companies to let it out? And so, uh, contextualizing and all of that is actually very valuable to the companies we've talked to already. They don't do that themselves. Um, we've actually had a whole bunch of them say, "Gee, can we just run it through your system and take it back?" because we'll now have all this information attached to our data or associated with it, um, which we hadn't thought about originally, but it seems to be its sort of like we're an oil refinery for the, for the oil drillers. Um, then on the other side of it is just how do you make a big company comfortable with this whole idea and, uh, and hopefully enthusiastic about it? Um, so to quote John Rossman, our friend who worked with Amazon, he said, you know, every part of the process, you want to remove friction. It works so well for Amazon. And they're doing um, <clears throat> this in the vein of, you know, how do I get a big company or even a small company to, to play in the sandbox with Amazon? We're now doing this at the level of huge companies that have been generating data for a long time. So how would they even deal with a third party? Um, we we realized that it was going to come down to trust, not just in us as a company, but trust in our Implementation um, in that regard, I suppose we're like Switzerland, you know. And um, part of the trust has led to the idea that we have to very strongly credential all participants in the data exchange process. So that means we have to know who's selling and who's buying. In most cases, in fact, I'd say the majority of cases, uh, buyers and sellers are the same companies. You know, they're just uh, they have different things they want to buy than sell. So we go through quite a lot of trouble to authenticate them. And that led to a paradigm, which we kind of borrowed from salesforce.com, which is um, people don't join turbine, organizations join Turbine, So you have to be a bona fide government agency or a university or a corporation uh, from anywhere in the world to participate in the exchange. And you also have to, uh, there's a little bit of pain you have to go through, like if you're setting up a PayPal account or something. But once you've done that, you don't have to go do it again unless something really massive changed, like you get acquired. And we then uh, know who you are. And then like in Salesforce, once we have your organization registered, you assign users who have roles like legal, finance, technical, line of business. And people can have multiple roles or a role can have multiple people assigned to it. And again, we, we, uh, we thought Salesforce did a great job of that. They, that really, I think, had a lot to do with them scaling and uh, that they just understood. They can't make a, a company conform to their paradigm. They need to be flexible enough to fit with lots of different organizational structures. So then the next part of it, okay, now we know who you are, we have the roles assigned, you got through that, which you know is uh, slightly onerous at, at the outset. Now you're in. Uh, once you're in, how do we know who did what to whom? So say you're a big company with all sorts of different data feeds, uh, you can set up policies that uh, are about to become AI-based that let you decide, well, this slice of my data can go to this constituency, uh, You know, say, my training partners. This slice of the data can go to um, you know, these government agencies in these parts of the world because of compulsion. I must give them that data, and this just makes it easy. The, this slice of my data, I want to go free to bona fide universities because I'm supporting universities, you know? And we actually baked that in. Then the next one would be, well, this lasts my data. I never wanna go to my competitors. So, and that's probably, that last one is the big one. So we had to make sure we really know who's in the network. Now, the other thing we have to do is track the actual individual transactions. And fortunately, the other technology that happens to be uh, here right now to support what we're doing uh, and this is another technology, which is why you couldn't have done turbine probably even five years ago at any kind of scale, which is blockchain. So we're uh, implementing blockchain in a way that says big Company A sent data through turbine to big company B, c, D, and we have blockchain uh, you know contracts, if you will, that actually keep track of all those exchanges. So, In an auditing way, if somebody came back later and said, hey, I really need to see who got this data, we can show them, you know, to the extent blockchain is an indelible record, it's certainly about the best common mode thing going out there. Then you can look at the blockchain and say, oh, I see this went to this company and this company on this fraction of a second, you know, so it's good stuff. Uh, We're pretty happy with blockchain in that regard. Um, We're not using blockchain for the money part, uh, at least not yet. So this is literally tracking data exchanges. Money is uh, pretty straightforward. It's uh, you know it goes through what big companies use, automated clearinghouses, or even uh,
0: huge limit uh, credit cards and things like that. All right, all right, very good. Um, last question is uh, for interested parties. I don't know if you're ready for them, but uh, maybe build up a uh, a book of interested vendors that you know will want to work with you. What's the best way for them to get in contact with you and start a dialogue?
1: Sure. Um, well, the, the easiest thing is just send us something to info at T E R B I N E. T-E-R-B-I-N-E.com, turbine with an E. Um, if it's biz dev, trust me, it'll get to me. Um, if um, they're trying to sell us legal services, it may not get to me.
0: <laughs>
1: but, um, <laughs> um, and of course, if you go to turbine.com, there's quite a lot of information um, We have this pretty cool video that's about two minutes long. Uh, If you go to our website, you'll see uh, uh, menu items as what is turbine. The video was made very kindly for us by some friends in Hollywood, and it's pretty neat. But it tells you a lot of what I just said with a lot fewer words and visuals. And then we have uh, the the front end is actually live now. Um, We have it currently populated with a lot of just publicly available sensor data we were able to find out there to test the system. And that's parked on turbine.io, and it probably always will be on turbine.io. And you can go right now and see uh, essentially metadata uh, that you can click on, and it'll tell you how many data sets go with that metadata. We've got some where there's literally 5,000 data sets parked behind one, metadata instance. And these are live, which means if you go tomorrow, there'll be more, and you go the next day, there'll be more. A lot of them are automotive, but a lot of them are really fun. Um, we hired a bunch of interns from around the world to find these things. It's been really uh, enjoyable to work with uh, amazing engineering students. Um, some of them are things like uh, bicycle counters in the congested district of London or um, uh, buoy readings for sea swells near New Zealand. You know, it's just fascinating. And the reason we love that is we're really trying to show people the really incredible panoply of sensor data that's out there. It's not just temperature. It's not just counting cars. And I'll close with this. We uh, we believe very strongly that the power in all of this, making this data available in a curated in a way, um, is going to be in cross-correlative applications. So this is where data from one sector now that it'll be available, it could be used in another sector in the same way that when you go on Amazon looking for, you know, I don't know a jar of mustard, you say, wow, I didn't know there was 500 kinds of mustard, you know, but you, or the way you just find movies on Netflix. So, um, about uh, three years ago, there was this earthquake in Napa Valley, right. uh, north of San Francisco. Now, the earthquake took place at about three in the morning which means that people probably weren't at work. They were probably not on the road. They were probably in bed. So uh, these enterprising data scientists at Fitbit and Jawbone, who makes the Up Fitness Tracker, you know, they got all their users in their cloud. They know where they live. So the data scientists did a super clever thing. They said, I wonder if we can tell where the earthquake was by looking at the jump in the heart rate. So people were woken up at three in the morning. And putting it on a, on a map. And, I, um, and you could find this online. Um, unbelievably, you could tell almost where the earthquake was centered by how fast somebody woke up. It was like, oh my God, there's an earthquake. And they jump out of bed. Well, there's an attendant jump in your heart rate. And they uh, put it on the map, and it looked a lot like the seismograph plot from the US Geological Survey. So nobody bought a Fitbit or an up to be a seismograph. And yet in that instant in time, they were a modified seismograph from a totally different vector. And hmm. we realized that, you know, barometric pressure and temperature that come from engine control units and cars could be used to create highly detailed weather maps and all sorts of things that those sensors were not put in for that reason. And yet, if you had the data
0: in abundance, you could use it for other, other purposes. Okay. Very good. Well, we can talk a lot more and cover things, but uh, we're kind of out of time. But I, I just want to say I appreciate you coming on the podcast. And um, I can see you're really passionate about it, and that's what it takes to get this kind of stuff going. And I didn't realize there's so much involved in getting this data and in getting it ready and processing it everything. So I'm glad that you've uh, stepped into this, this void and you're going to do it. I think it's going to be huge. It's going to take a while, but it's a very important thing. So thank you.
1: Yeah, and uh, I'll mention that um – I actually write a uh, uh, sort of a blogger column in the biggest, still the biggest IT magazine computer world um, called IoT Watch. And it's sort of a quasi business oriented uh, series of thousand word articles uh, that talk about some of these issues and um, uh, get quite a lot of readers. Uh, In fact, I'll very happily mention this uh, podcast in there.